Take a pen. Um, anyway, Acts 19, 11 through 22, uh, we are in this series, this four-week series, last week today, uh, of sickness and healing, which is really about prayer, because uh, we're doing this prayer conference coming up in February 23rd, and we really want to kind of set the ground for that. Um, whenever you're preaching this stuff before somebody else is speaking, you're always wondering, oh my gosh, am I going to say anything that they, they would contradict, you know? But anyway, we won't worry about that. But no, I don't think I am. Uh, so Acts 19, 11 through 22, I'm not going to read the whole passage this morning, uh, remembering that this is a passage that we're just kind of setting the tone for our messages for. Uh, but I'll read the first two verses. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. Sounds like Elvis or something, right? Remember Elvis? He used to have these like big silk white things and he would throw them out to the ladies. They'd be like, ah, right? It's not like Elvis, but it reminds me of it, you know? That's where my, my head goes. That's, when I'm having a quiet time, I, that's what I have to repent of, those kinds of thoughts. But <laughs> and then it says, in their illnesses were, were cured and evil spirits left them. I know what I was going to say. Could someone grab me a bottle of that water out of the fridge back there? I forgot to bring one up, and I will need it. Um, thank you very much, Mark. Um, let's begin with a video. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But... Did you see the moonwalking bear? <laughs> there he is. So who saw, how many saw him the first time? Yeah, a couple people. And I know a few of you already know the video, so you're, you're cheating. But, right, well, as soon as... as after you've been told, you, you can't unsee it, right? Like as soon as I looked up there, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I saw the bear because I've already seen this and I know what the answer is. But, you know, you've seen this image too. This is an old image that, you know, has been thrown around quite a bit. But if you've never seen it, there are a, it's a sort of a mind play with two women, right? There's an old woman that's like kind of looking down and then there's a, a younger woman that's looking away. And once you identify that, you can't unsee it. Right? The first time you might look at it and you might only see the young woman or you might see the old woman and then somebody tells you, oh, there's two. But, and you just can't unsee it once you've seen that. Same thing goes with buying a car, right? You ever notice that when you go to buy a car that you start to see that car everywhere, right? When I went to buy my Civic, suddenly there were Civics everywhere on the road. And I, I had never noticed the Civic before that, right? Before I started wanting one. It's interesting, really, how our... Um, our powers of perception work, how our minds work, how when we focus on something, we start to see it everywhere, right? C.S. Lewis said, this is the first, and by the way, C.S. Lewis, if he said it, it's correct, right? We are, like, he, he's next, he's like one step, like little increment below Jesus. But he could be wrong maybe once in his life, but that was about it. But he says, this is the first thing to get clear in talking about miracles. Whatever experiences we may have, we shall not regard them as miraculous 
if we already hold to a philosophy, and I want to change that word philosophy to worldview today, if we already hold to a philosophy or a worldview which excludes the supernatural, right? In other words, if we see miracles happening, we don't really regard them as miraculous if, the, if our worldview doesn't accommodate a miracle, right? If we're not really thinking about it, if we're not looking for it, it's useless to try and convince anybody uh, of mir- that miracles happen if they've already just refused to believe that miracles happen. It just doesn't work. Ken Blue tells a story of a woman who had been suffering from epileptic seizures and migraine headaches for over 20 years, and the doctors had treated her uh, with drugs for these 20 years, and she, it, it seemed not to do much for her headaches at all, and it mildly controlled her seizures. And she came to Ken and his wife to be prayed for, right? Two separate occasions, they prayed for her. Now, I want to note right there that we, we typically, oh, we'll pray for the, I'm willing to pray for the sick. I prayed for Vinny this morning. Now, he almost didn't lead worship, but I prayed for him. So now, prayer of the righteous, you know what I mean? But um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. But we did. We did pray for Vinny this morning. I sent out a text that pray for Vinny, right? But, and typically, if somebody's sick or they're hurt or whatever, and we pray for them and nothing happens, they don't go, we don't pray a second time, do we? Normally. So notice that two separate times they prayed over this woman to no effect. Like Ken Blue and his wife pray over this lady. So they invite her back a third time. So I wouldn't have invited her back the second time, let alone a third time, right? And third time's a charm, right? Because when she came back, they prayed, and she felt a shift in her body. And her headaches went away immediately. She had no more migraine headaches. And she felt, she personally felt that that shift was evidence of some sort of a spirit leaving her body, some sort of an unclean spirit leaving her body. And she went back to the doctors and she was tested the following week to test her brain waves or whatever it is, brain activity, and it showed no disturbance. And so they thought it was a mistake of the machine, so they, they retested her the next day, still uh, came out negative. There was no problem in her any, any longer after 20 years. So they dropped her dosage, and after a few weeks, she was totally off any uh, drugs for her seizures or anything like that, and they were, you know, they were very competent. They were very conscientious doctors. They were thoughtful doctors. They were good doctors, right? And these guys came to a conclusion that they had been wrong in their diagnosis for over 20 years, although tests had very clearly shown otherwise for as much as 20 years. So they would risk a malpractice suit other than admit it might be a divine healing, right? So how many people passed the ball? Did you see anything else in the video, right? Old woman, young woman, can you see both? Do you want to buy a Civic, right? Those are the questions. Do we look at life with a faithful expectation to see God work, right? Are we looking around every corner in every situation to see God move, to see something happen, Do we expect it? Well, here's a challenge. This week, all throughout your week, I want you to to count how many red BMWs you see, right? I mean, we live on the main line. There's a lot of BMWs probably, but red ones, not so many, right? Usually people that buy BMWs don't buy red ones. They're they're kind of flashy. Red's a flashy color. Your, Your car insurance goes up when you buy a red car, by the way. But count how many red BMWs you see. 
And I'll bet you start to see them everywhere. I bet you they'll just start to pop pop up. And maybe if our worldview included God, we would see his miraculous work everywhere that we walk, in every situation. I have a book, kind of a lengthy title, but it's called 1,000, I have to read it, 1,001 Quotes, Illustrations, and Humanist Stories for Preachers, Teachers, and Writers. (sighs) Right? Stupid title. But... Should have shortened that, but it's it's a pith, you know, it's full of pithy little Christian stories or quotes that you can pepper a sermon with or a talk with or whatever, and they're all listed under various headings. So if you want a quote on money or calling or humanity or the Bible or marriage or what have you, you just turn to that heading and you look one up. And so I got curious when I was writing this, uh, what would this book have on healing, right? So I thumbed through the pages to the H headings, and I came up against hatred and heart and heaven, and there was no healing. So I turned to the M's for miracles, and I went through that. Mercy, ministry, misfortune, no miracles. And then I turned to S for supernatural. Surely I'd find something about the supernatural. Stewardess, or stewardship, not stewardess, <laughs> stress, <laughs> stress, then tactfulness. I was in the T's, and there was no Supernatural. And what, I, what I'm trying to say to you is that we don't, as moderns, we don't have a context. We don't have a room for thinking about the miraculous. It's not in our vocabulary necessarily. We function almost fully without reference to God, oriented almost exclusively to a secularist worldview or a secular worldview or, a, or an individualistic Western worldview, if you want to call it that way, that I, we could name it uh, many different things, right? And we all have a worldview, sort of like out of the core of our being, how we view reality. Yet we would be very hard-pressed to define what that worldview is, how we really see it. Because without realizing it, we naturally believe that our worldview is the right way to view reality, right? America's number one, by the way. Right? That's, we just think about that. Like we are right the way that we view all reality. It wouldn't occur to us to think of looking at reality in a different way or that there could be a different way of looking at reality. And that's why you have culture shock in a foreign culture. It's just not a, you know, language and, you know, a foreign language and dirty bathrooms that you struggle with. It's, but you do struggle with that, right? It's the way that people think. I, mean, I remember sitting in my... Um, a friend's house in Bandung, Indonesia once, and we had just eaten with them, and we were on a dirt floor, and right next to me, the, she just threw the plates in this room on the floor, and, and the, the rats just came like <laughs> like a dozen rats. I mean, a foot away from me. They're eating all the leftovers. Mm, my worldview didn't accommodate for that, right? It was very different. <laughs> also, when she took a, a rotten chicken out of our or trash to take home to eat. I mean, it was, wow. Um, But it's not just, you know, language and dirty bathrooms that we struggle with. It's the way that people view reality. It's the way that they think differently than us, which sets our minds spinning, our emotions spinning. Why did they do it that way? Why did they say it that way? Why did they ask me that question? My daughter, (laughs) oh my gosh, I laugh so hard at this. She, she is in Uganda right now for a semester, and she spent uh, two weeks in a homestay, and she wrote, <laughs> she wrote this wonderful, very serious, wonderful letter, and then at the end, she goes, I'll end with a comedic point, 
She goes, I didn't realize till the last day at my homestay that the buckets with which we washed our face and did our showers with were the same buckets that we relieved ourselves in in the middle of the night. And I was like, oh, and I just, man, I laughed all the way out the door and into my car. I'm like, that's my girl right there. Like, she's, she's living life. That's good stuff, right? <laughs> well, maybe not good stuff, but... Um, but we, you know, in culture shock, if you've ever experienced it, we end up angry. We, we end up depressed in culture shock and we label everybody around us. We get very, very angry. You get surprised at how mean you get in the middle of culture shock. And we label everybody around us as backwards or stupid since we just really don't understand that they come at reality differently. And when, if you can get through that, you become a much better communicator in that second culture. I remember I was in a Muslim home once in Lampung, Indonesia one day at the southern tip of Sumatra and, and all the men were in the, in the room smoking closed cigarettes like they wouldn't get another one, you know. And, and one of their friends had just died of cancer and they were, they were talking about it. And it was long enough that I, you know, in the past that I could, you know, say something. And I, and I injected with my nice, nice, neat, clean Western worldview, I said, uh, you know, I thought I'd teach him something. And I said, well, maybe if he didn't smoke all those years, he wouldn't have died of cancer. And uh, the response was an overwhelming no. I was really surprised. I mean, they came at me. No, our choices have nothing to do with it. God takes us when God takes us. I can smoke all I want. doesn't matter, right? And I'd come up against an almost purely deterministic theological worldview, Right? Everything in their mind, everything in their worldview was controlled by God or some unseen spiritual force in the world. For instance, at night in the village, all windows are closed, no matter how smoky it is or how much they're smoking in there, you know, how much all that, that fills the room or how many mosquitoes are trapped in there, since the spirits can get in through the windows and harm family members. So you close everything up. Even if there's an indoor fireplace, fire, which just is going up to the ceiling, the smoke's filling the ceiling. No one swims in a waterfall or near a waterfall in Indonesia without first throwing rocks into the waterfall to scare away the evil spirits that might kill you if you go in there swimming. At the beach in Pelabuan Ratu in Java, you do not, if you value your life, go swimming with a green bathing suit because the sea goddess, the sea spirit, loves the color green and she will drown you for it. That's the belief. If you're sick, you need a spouse, you want a child, you go to the dukun, you, don't, you go to the witch doctor. You don't go to a counselor, a psychologist. You don't go to the doctor to get fertility treatments. You go to the dukun. Your missionary friend goes to the hospital and gets you medicine, which you promptly sell one, because you need the money to buy food, but because really it's because your sickness in your mind is caused by a neighbor who's put a curse on you, and it's not a medical issue at all. And that missionary, he means well, but he's kind of an idiot, right? People who come to Christ from a, um, a Muslim background, we call them Muslim background believers, are much more effective evangelists in their own cultures uh, since their worldview fits the context in which they are speaking. And in some ways, yet not all, they carry over into their Christianity a, a much more biblical worldview. At least it starts from a theistic perspective. You know, the idea that God and, and, and the spiritual realm is real and active and alive and well all around us. 
They're in touch with it. Not true for us over here, right? Not true for us. In our world, the, 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 the world is a mechanistic closed system. That's what it is. Secularism denies anything spiritual and all our reality is viewed only through the lens of, 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 of cause and effect of natural law. Right? Although we talk about God in churches across our country, we believe David Hume when he says, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. A firm and unalterable experience has established these laws. The proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as an argument from experience can possibly be imagined. In other words, miracles don't happen. Worldviews. Worldviews are born into You didn't formulate it by cognitive thought. You didn't think about, well, how am I going to view the world, right? You are immersed in your culture from the very moment you are born. And and they go, our worldviews go largely unnoticed and unquestioned in our lives. Most people don't ever think about it. Unless you went through a sociology course or a psychology course in college, right? For instance, the first thing a Muslim child hears when they're born, is the shahada, uh, their father whispering the shahada in their, in their ear, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. It's what he begins life with, right? Born into a theistic worldview. For the Western Christian, though, we're not. And as a result, there comes that internal struggle that, that something goes you know, in, inside our brains when we read about Paul and others healing people or doing miracles in the scriptures. Due to our worldview, we postulate that all of that stopped after the apostles. We even construct theology, theology that says it stopped after the apostles in some churches. So what's a worldview? Right? Well, you've probably seen the Quas worldview model, right? Ooh, somebody's texting me. Um, I'll turn that off. Um, this is his uh, model, and, and at the center of, of each one of us is our worldview. At our heart level, we, we view the world as through this, this worldview, of, and that tells us what is real. What is real, Right? And that leads in, 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 into uh, the belief of what is true, or, the, or answering the question, what is true, our beliefs. And then that leads into what is good, our best, our values. And that leads to, into what is done, our behavior, how we act. And then you could even add another circle on the outside of that, which answers the question, what is obtained or accumulated, our artifacts. And if you're old enough, uh, you may have seen George Carlin's, you know, the old comedy act where he talks about our stuff, right? Who, who remembers that? You remember that, right? <laughs> Anybody 50 and older, right? Everybody else is like, who's George Carlin? Well, he was an old hippie, an old comedian, and he, and he was a brilliant guy in many ways. Um, not that I agree with everything George Carlin says, but he did this routine where he talked about, as Americans, we just got to get more stuff. We got to gather more stuff. And if we, if we have too much stuff in our house, we got to get a bigger house to get more places for our stuff. And every, we have to have a room for each person because we're all individuals. And I have to have my special place just for my stuff and all that stuff. He just goes through this whole thing, and it was brilliant. But it's a reflection of our worldview. He's talking about our worldview. And this is hugely useful to understand for many reasons. Habitual sin, for instance. You know, that thing that you can't stop doing, even though, you know, in your Christianity, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. 
Why can't I change my behavior? Right? Well, maybe my worldview doesn't really hold to the reality of God. Maybe down at the core of me, it's not really given over to Jesus or something. Maybe, maybe I'm going at this all backwards, right? For instance, uh, Islam works on, only on the outsur- outside circles of behavior, right? It only works on, the, uh, on beha- the behavioral level, on the outside of the person. Act in certain religious ways, do certain religious things, and, and, and you are fulfilling your, your whatever to God. You're being religious, right? In Islam, it never really matters, and somebody might disagree with me, but you would be wrong. Uh, but it, it never really matters where your heart is. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. You can be as hateful as the day is long. Not that I think every Muslim is hateful. Not that I think that some of them don't pursue love. But you can be as hateful as the day is long. As long as you outwardly perform the five pillars of Islam, you are golden with God. It doesn't matter where your heart is. It's very different from from Christianity. Some Christians, though, do the same. Don't do this, don't do that. You're a good Christian, right? You know, all about how you are more. It's a moralistic Christianity, a works-based righteousness, trying to prove myself to you, trying to prove myself to God, trying to earn my way in, which is very, it is not true Christianity, right? And we know it never works. It really just produces a facade, It produces anger, it produces bitterness, it produces depression, it produces a secret sin life. There is no heart transformation. And this is why we have pedophile priests. It's a much deeper level issue than just they're that way. There's something deep going on there, right? Jesus works from the inside out, from the very core of me, my my very worldview. He seats himself on the throne of our inner life, and he changes us from the core of our being. It's by his grace and his righteousness, by faith, that we are saved, not our works. You know, we are changed by him. He changes our worldview and our reality. So who am I in Christ? Well, I'm many things, and if you go to a community group at 6-8 here, you'll hear many of those things in the community group this week. But firstly, I would just say right now that I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms as his brother, as his co-heir, as his beloved, and all the power and all the resources of God's kingdom are available to me right now. And as a result, our, our beliefs, our values, our behaviors, and even our artifacts eventually will change solidly over time as we are spiritually formed into his likeness. Sorry, my thing's not staying on this morning. If I'm a person holding on to a secular individualistic worldview, then my core is convinced only by what I can prove scientifically, what I can see, taste, and touch. God isn't part of it. It's, it's, it's survival of the fittest. It's the individual is the most important thing. I'm not saying that everybody's a bunch of selfish jerks out there, but the individual is at the center of it, right? I am at the center in that worldview. So I believe only that which I can see, I can taste, I can touch, and I value really only that which benefits me. I become skeptical. I don't indulge in religious, fanciful things like miracles and such like that. I work hard to get ahead for myself. I, I undermine and I overtake others for my own benefit because I'm the only one that can define my reality. 
And in my artifacts, I collect things which make me feel secure, they make me feel safe, or which expand my influence in the world, insurance, safe cars, a bigger house, prestigious belongings maybe, something that makes me look good in front of you. The self is the ultimate reality in that worldview. And I believe the individual is all important and I value that which feeds the self and I build only really myself. You might be a nice person and I might do some things for you, but at the center of my life is me. And the result is that we have McMansions, right? Not that it's bad to have a big house. I'm not saying that, but... We do. This is our culture. We have McMansions where everyone has their own space, their own privacy, their own cars, and and other such things, and which where we express our individuality and we and special interest groups dominate our political system and so on and so forth. Because we're all individuals, we all have to have our own voice. Yet even Even the strict secularist, modernist, existentialist, humanist is cultic at the core. We're all like that, right? They need, they want, they desire purpose and connection somewhere in there that they can't prove. They can't figure that out. They don't fully understand it, but intuitively, they feel it. They feel it at the core of their being. And so they're not just buying cars and looking at porn for you know, scientific utilitarianism. It's not just, you know, blah. It's, there's something down in there. They consume these things because they need something emotionally. They need something spiritually to fill that void, that God-shaped hole that is in every human being. But they're stuck. They're stuck in a system of thought which doesn't accommodate spiritual answers. really doesn't. When I was in Asia... I found individuality is looked on with great skepticism. So dressing the same as everyone else is normal. Uniforms in the workplace, uniforms in school were the norm. Showing up to church with all your children in the same shirt. Oh, gosh, I hated that. It's like so cheesy. (laughs) But individuality isn't valued. Look the same, do the same, act the same. That makes people feel safer. Insurance in Indonesia was a struggling business, not only because of economics, like people couldn't afford or they felt that they couldn't afford to pay in it, but it wasn't seen as needed in a deterministic, theistic worldview. They were fatalistic. Everything's in God's hands. Doesn't matter if I save or not. God will take care of us. Or the spiritual world will take care of us. Or that evil spirit that I've bound my family to will take care of us. He will destroy everybody else on my block so I can be great, right? But how does a biblical worldview look? How, you know, where does this secular worldview come from? Well, it comes from many places. We all know that, but we can, we can pinpoint some thinkers in the world. Uh, Rene Descartes, for instance, born in the 16th century, a French philosopher, mathematician, a man of science, concluded that everything was open to doubt except for conscious uh, experience and existence. Uh, he was the father of modern philosophy. He's the guy that said, I think, therefore I am. Right? You know that quote. And he was one of, uh, one of the people who started this whole ball rolling in our thinking. He believed in God, right? But, but for him, God was only a starting point. And from that point, 
Uh, Descartes built a system of, of understanding reality through what only can be proved mathematically in cause and effect. Later philosophers found no reason absolutely uh, to include God in the equation at all. Right? So they dispensed with God at all. The door had been opened by Descartes to, to exclude God, and him, humanity just walked right through that door. Blaise Pascal said, I cannot forgive Descartes. In all of his philosophy, Descartes did his best to dispense with God. But Descartes could not avoid, and this is, this, Descartes did believe in God. He said, could not avoid prodding God to set the world in motion with a snap of his lordly fingers. But after that, hey, he had no more use of God. So was Descartes an evil man? No. Did his thinking help set in motion this exclusion of God in our modern Western worldview? Yes, he did. He did. But we all know it's not just his fault, right? And some of his thinking, some of that drive in that thinking has benefited us greatly. Before the 1600s, for instance, there was basically a theistic worldview or whatever you want to call it. I'm not really sure what we would call it, but it ruled societies, right? The church controlled the world, it seemed at least in the Western world. Church and state were synonymous. Kings were chosen by and subject to the Pope, right? Christianity had become largely practiced from the behavioral level instead of understanding that the enthroned Christ changes my heart from the worldview level. The scientific revolution, the reformation, the enlightenment, and all that stuff has brought us some great freedoms, and it's helped faith to be free, break free from that sort of wrong power and control of the church. Luther and others helped us to understand, again, that it is by grace that we're saved through faith, and this is not by works, not by none of us, so that nobody can boast. Brought us back to truth. They returned us to the more biblical worldview of reality that it's Christ's work in us alone which saves us and changes a person. So we can't advocate going back to the dark ages. Backwards is never the, play, the way to go. Men like Hegel, and I, I, my old boss was a direct descendant of Hegel. He was a German philosopher um, who pushed this process forward with his, the Hegelian dialect, you know, uh, thesis and antithesis and synthesis. It was a system that we adopted to use to prove things in the world, right? Still think about that. We still do that. We still use it. And, and though his work was not also not the only influence in our modern worldview, yet he contributed to the idea that everything had to be provable, and it's not. And one result of that was that areas of study started to become separated out. Right? You ever notice that? Now education isn't necessarily holistic in its teaching, seeing everything as originating from the Creator, and somehow it's useful to understand many things and how they're all linked together. We don't think like that anymore. We, we, now we specialize in more narrow areas of study. Yet interestingly, philosophers and physicists are now looking for the unified theory of quantum th- physics. Have you ever heard of that? crazy. One theory that they think which will unify all the workings of nature, right? One thing that'll tell us everything, the theory of all things. If we're coming full circle, it seems like, right? It just seems like we're, we're coming around. And it's described in this quote. It says, an intellect which at a certain moment 
would know all forces that set nature in motion and all positions of all items which nature is composed, if this intellect were also vast enough to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. Sounds like God to me, right? But you've got to remember, God's no longer part of the equation in our worldview. So that intellect, at this point, would probably be regarded as a computer, large enough to crunch the numbers into which we would feed all the information of the world via the Internet, and it would be artificial intelligence, the thing that we're all kind of really excited about but really scared about at the same time, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, taking over the world. So all the world and everything in it, anything true has been reduced to anything which can be proved scientifically. That's where we are. The world has been made an autonomous machine which can be broken down and put back together and controlled. Instead of God, science has become our provider. Science and other things like education and things like that. You know, our own provider, our own fix-it man, our own savior. But he's doing a pretty bad job. Or she's doing a pretty bad job, whatever, you wanna, whatever pronoun you want to put on there. See, we may be theists in our behavior and in the outward circle sometimes, but inwardly we are secular, secularist through and through. That's a hard word to say after you've said it so many times. Truth is, truth is now synonymous with what can be proven scientifically, yet all this is failing the postmodern mind. It's all failing us, and we know it. We're seeing shifts in our worldview right now, in our thinking once again. Science doesn't fully cut it, and we're starting to get that. Never, it never will cut it. It never, never will answer all that. I'm not anti-science, by the way. I'm just anti-science's savior, right? We intuitively feel it. We know it. Some of you are doctors in here. You know how limited you are in your doctoring. Some of you are scientists in here. You know how limited you are in your theories. We know it. We know it. So how does this affect our prayers, all this stuff? Well, prayer isn't our first choice. It's not our first choice. And when we do pray, it's done with very little confidence and assurance, right? We betray our inner workings. And like Mr. Lewis said, when a miracle does occur, it's not recognized as such sometimes. And now, now we have a modern uh, biblical, you know, we have modern biblical scholars out there who are looking for the quote-unquote historical Jesus. And in doing so, what they're doing is they're extracting all of the miraculous and all the healing texts out of the Scriptures, and they're throwing those out because they consider them to be fanciful exaggerations of simple-minded, unenlightened folk. Like they're smarter than Paul. But the battle, let me say this very clearly, the battle isn't between science and faith. It's not at all. It's not between the medical uh, community and faith healers. It's not. The two are not mutually exclusive. Doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and such 
or have a great value in the church and should be consulted and utilized when we seek God in healing. I just had dinner with Shu Wen the other night and her husband, David, and she is a psychologist, right? Psychologist, and you know, she researches, she's also got a practice, very valuable in this community. And all many of you know, as I've talked to you, I've sent you to a psychologist. I've sent you to Christian counselors and psychologists that are meaty people that can really help you walk through your issues. I've sent people to doctors. You know, go, go to the doctor, right? The fight is really between a biblical worldview versus a secular worldview. That's where it is. We need to remember 1 Corinthians 4.20, which says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Where is this power? An American pastor, John White, went on a preaching tour of Southeast Asia, and he preached the gospel and prayed for the sick, and people were healed. However, as soon as he hit Australia, who share our Western worldview, healing abruptly stopped. Interesting, maybe Aussies don't faithfully expect God to be working in their reality, or maybe they just didn't recognize it, I don't know. Yet Peter Wagner and other missiologists assure us that healings happen where worldview accommodates it, and as a result, there is a validation of the message of the gospel, evangelism is much more effective, and church growth is exponential. Sounds like Acts 19. Sounds like something's going on. But last week... You know, if you're astute, you were here last week. We said that God isn't limited by our faith. And he's not. I stand by what I said last week. But like many things in life, we live in a tension of two truths that we don't really understand, right? For some reason, it seems sometimes he might limit himself to our response in certain contexts. It's the nature of relationship, maybe. I don't know. We know it's never about our earning favor or manipulation of God. I don't want to be a faith healer on TV with pearly white teeth and bouffant do, you know. I don't want that. But he wants us to be active in relationship with him as well and with each other. He wants us to be active in our faith. We can't figure it all out. I can't figure it all out. I can't give you all the messages or the, the answers to all these, these questions. But we can only be responsible with what we know and what we've been given. We're simply to press farther into Jesus. Farther into Jesus for the sake of his glory in the world, being obedient to his calling to reach all nations, to love people well. So we go back to Paul when he said in Romans 12 too, to not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen after that. But most of us read that verse and we come at it with a moralistic eye, a little crooked eye. What it means to us is don't look at pornography, don't listen to bad music, don't do this, don't do that. Stand, you know, start from the outer circle and maybe you'll work inward. I don't think that's what he meant. The deeper issue is how we view reality. Are we theistic through and through? Are we, are we, are we given over to Jesus? Does, does Christ rule us at the heart level with, with freedom to change us from the inside out? Not just in church on Sunday mornings in an outward behavioral display of religiosity, but do we look for the red BMW? Do we look for the moonwalking bear in the video? You know, do we see God in, 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 in all of life as active in all of life? Are we expecting him? 
Is God's reality of his word enthroned as our reality in our lives at the core of our beings? Do I see his kingdom everywhere I look? That's the question I ask myself. I want to be hearing the Holy Spirit. I I, I want to be proficient in his word, but I also want to be active in my relationship with him. And he calls me into that. They say, if you stare at the four dots in the middle of this picture for 30 seconds, that when you look away to a white wall, you see the face of Jesus very clearly. Why don't we try that? I'll give you 30 seconds. Just stare at those four dots right there in the middle, and I'll I'll give you 30 seconds. Then there's that big white wall up there, and you can look up there, and maybe you'll see Jesus. I'll give you 30 seconds. Go ahead. Stare away. Don't look away. Ooh, it's so quiet. Yeah, <laughs> Jason's not talking. There's, the world has just shifted. Getting close. All right, that's probably enough. All right, now look at the white wall. Do you see his face? Yeah, you do. It comes into focus, right? It is pretty cool. I like that. I feel very uh, creative. Looks like me. <laughs> without the glasses and the microphone. Well, wouldn't that be nice, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Just to see Jesus all day long in life, all around you, in every conversation, in every turn of life. We need to suspend our skepticism, right? We need to act in faith. In Matthew 16, 1 through 4, the Pharisees demand a sign from heaven. Right? They're kind of angry guys. They're like, give us proof, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And Jesus, what did he do? Did he give him a big, did he like, you know, make a dog appear or something like that? No. He, said, he refused. God's not going to be manipulated like that. Right? Yet comparatively, we find Peter's confession in verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And his confession then in the next chapter in verses 1 through 7 is is followed by this proof from heaven. Jesus was taken, or Peter was taken up with Jesus to watch this transfiguration. A sign from heaven, proof of who Jesus was to Peter. What does that say? Right? The Pharisees' skepticism followed by nothing versus Peter, honest faith followed by the miraculous. Sometimes maybe signs aren't given to angry skeptics, but to the childlike faithful who act on God's word. Or maybe the person that's just not railing against God. They're just ready to receive something, and they don't even understand that it's Jesus, right? So let's renew our minds. Let's let's have our minds renewed, I should say. Go home this week and look for the red BMW. And when you see one, remember 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk, but of power. I want to be active in that, right? Go home this week in faithful, childlike expectation of what God will do in and through us, all of us. 
Matthew 18, 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Just give yourself over to the Lord. Just give yourself over to this Father in heaven. And that doesn't mean that we throw out our intellect, you know, that we become, you know, our intelligence or anything like that. We don't become idiots. Rather, it means trusting in a God who is actually there, active and heals and delivers, who loves his world, who loves his people, and is interactive with it. We become childlike in our reliance on him, not childish in our behavior or childish in our thinking. He didn't say become childish. He said become childlike. There's a difference. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I love you. These people here sitting in front of me love you. Uh, we are. We want to walk with you. You've you've placed your Holy Spirit in our lives, and we are we are grateful for all of that. We're grateful for the truths of the gospel. We are grateful that we stand on the promises that you've given us. We are grateful that we stand in the history of the faithful. We are grateful that we have a God that is interactive and wants to walk with us and wants to take us into great adventures of faith. And, and we are sometimes skeptical. We are sometimes afraid. And we are sometimes just plainly indifferent or sometimes just clouded or selfish. We ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us in only that joyous way that you can, that you can, you can reveal whatever it is that's holding us back in our relationship and our walk with you in only that way that brings us joy and brings us the desire to want to do it. Uncover our desire. Sweep away the leaves, the brush, the dirt that has over the years been placed upon our desire. Sweep it away. Reignite it that we would walk with you strongly and well, that we would give over our lives in every single way for the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of your kingdom. We thank you.